0: The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Romans 9, 30
1: to 10, verse 4. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law
0: I haven't figured out the trick yet to uh, taking off a mask at the same time as putting this on. But anyways, uh, good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist. And uh, first of all, happy Thanksgiving uh, to all of you. Uh, ever since I was a kid, um, Thanksgiving Sunday was my favorite time for the church to gather. There was something about, about being together and being grateful together together. There was something about eating pumpkin pie together that I really liked, um, and it's just really great that we can gather here, that we can gather online as well. However, we've gathered. Welcome, and uh, it's really good to be able to be here t- today. And I'm going to begin uh, by praying. So let's let's pray together. Father, I thank you for all of the truths that we just sang about you. I thank you that we can rest on the truth that you have existed since before the creation of the world and that all of the glory in the highest is for you and i thank you lord that you know exactly how you want to use today's word to speak to hearts i thank you that you know exactly how you want this service to land and for for you to use it for your glory and i pray father that you would have your way uh, as we look at what you've given us in the book of romans this morning I pray that you would have your way and that we would learn from it together. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the past few weeks, as we've been working through chapter 9 in Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, Paul's words have mostly been focused on answering one really important question. And, And that question is more or less like this. If Jesus is the means by which people can be saved from sin which he is, and if Israel is in fact the chosen people of God, which they are, then why isn't all of Israel being saved? Why aren't more Jewish people coming to find Christ? That's the question that Paul has been answering, and it's an important important question in the Roman church right then. Of course for us, this is Thanksgiving weekend, and people are coming home, Uh, I've seen a number of of faces today of people who have been away and they're back home. Uh, Families are getting together uh, to celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, My son Josh is home from uh, Bible school and it's been fantastic uh, just to have a few days together um, and I'm looking forward to a bit more of that yet. And I'm sure that that's the case for a number of families here as well. And it reminded me of when I was a college student and I was coming home uh, for the first time after being away from home for a little while. Uh, it was good to be home. It was great to be home, but it was kind of strange to be home. And maybe some of you have had that experience as well. It was kind of weird because it had never occurred to me that when you go away, life kind of keeps going on, and people keep doing things, and they keep growing, and they're doing different different activities. And so when you come home after being away for a while, you, so there's almost this sense that you have to fit in to what's already been evolving while, while you've been away, and, and it, that's a weird feeling. That's a strange thing to experience, and I think that that's a similar dynamic to what's been going on in the Roman church at the time of the writing of Paul's letter. You see, Christianity first came to Rome, uh, very likely, Uh, right after the first Pentecost that we read about in Acts chapter 2. There were many, many Jews from many, many places gathered in Jerusalem, and that's where they first experienced Christ, and then they all went home. And so many Christians who had been in Jerusalem went home to Rome, and now they're Christians. And so they begin a church, and so that's, that's how the church began in Rome, and over the next 20 years, under the leadership of these Jewish Christians, the, the church continued to grow, with some more Jews coming to faith, and some more Gentiles, who are, are not Jews, also coming to faith, and, and the church continued to, to grow in this way, until, in about 49 AD, about 20 years after the church began in Rome, uh, the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome, And it's not completely clear why that is, there's some historical writings that lead us to believe that actually it had to do with Christianity. That there was some tension because some of the Jews were becoming Christians and the Jews who were not Christians, there was, there was some tension there. And of course the Roman authorities at that point, they didn't know the difference between Jew- Jews and, and Christian Jews. Uh, and so all of the Jews were kicked out of, out of Rome. At that time and so you can imagine that this presented quite a change for the church in Rome all of a sudden the Jewish Christians who began that church and who had been very much a part of the leadership of that church and the growing of that church they're not there anymore and so for for quite a while uh, the church in Rome which had begun been begun by Jews is now completely made up of Gentiles the leadership is Gentile, uh, the flock was Gentile, and as the church grew, all of the new converts for, for a period of time uh, were Gentiles. And so, after about five years or so passed, and, and, and things kind of cooled down, and, and Jewish people were allowed back into Rome, and they started to trickle back to their home, and, and they found that the church that they had, had left was not the same church that they were coming back to kinda like college students coming home and finding that life's continued to go on without them being there. Things had changed quite a lot, and so you can probably imagine some of the tensions that started to develop uh, between these two different groups, and it was likely painfully clear, especially to the Jewish Christians, that there were a lot more Gentile Christians present than Jewish Christians. And so it would have been natural that they would be asking the question that Paul has been spending the last chapter we've been reading, that he's been answering, and that question again is, why were so few Jews coming to know Christ? After all, hadn't God promised Abraham that his descendants would forever be God's chosen people? Of course he did, indeed he did. Way back in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And that seemed pretty clear to everybody who had read that. And so, in our sermon series in these past few weeks, we've seen Paul methodically addressing some big questions that the Jews might have had in response to all of this. Questions like, and we've heard this in the last few weeks, has the word of God failed? And the answer was, nope. The scriptures had already made it clear that God's promise would come to include some people who were outside God's chosen people of Israel. So no, God's word had not failed. So was God being unfaithful to his promise? Nope. We heard last week how Paul quoted from the prophet Isaiah when the Lord said, Though the number of sons of Israel be as sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. You see, God had made it clear that not everyone who was ethically a descendant of Israel, was going to be included in God's promise to Israel. So no, God was not being unfaithful. So then, was it unjust of him that some Jewish people were excluded from the original promise while others weren't? Nope. In fact, as Paul points out, this is not about the exclusion of anyone, but rather about the merciful inclusion of some. Paul quoted Exodus in the last chapter we read, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. See, no one, no one deserves to be saved, and if God had shown compassion to no one, that would be just, but the fact that he extended grace to anyone is an act of mercy. So, so no, God is not unjust. And those were just some of Paul's arguments that we've been hearing over the past couple of weeks. And all of them have been in defense of God's sovereignty and God's character. And in today's passage, Paul is making a significant switch, uh, a shift in his argument. Uh, He's still answering the same question. He's still answering, why isn't all of Israel being saved? That's still the big question. But now, instead of defending the sovereign choices of God, he is pointing at human responsibility. He's going from talking about the sovereignty of God in election and choosing who is going to be saved to talking about our responsibility to choose the salvation of Christ. And so Paul, he makes no attempt to try to reconcile these two things. He just proceeds with an assumption that somehow they're both true. And that's the assumption that we've been proceeding with as well as we've been going through this passage and I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm content to know that behind a curtain that I can't see, I can't see what's behind the curtain, God has a mechanism that he uses for how he seeks and saves the lost. And somehow that mechanism is dependent on both the will and the choice of God, and also the will and the choice of the people, of us. And however those two things shake hands, uh, the, ra- the reality of whatever's behind that curtain, it doesn't change the reality of what God calls me to. In any case, if we come to know Jesus Christ, and, that he, we, and if we know that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, then we are invited to confess our sins and accept him and put our faith in him. That's the same either way. And when we do that, both Scripture and God's Holy Spirit, they compel us to tell others about Jesus that they might know him too. That's also the same either way. So whatever happens behind the curtain to make that work, that's good with me. And that was also good with the Apostle Paul. And so today, he moves from God's responsibility to our responsibility. And that's where we start today's passage uh, that Rudy just read uh, in verse, verse 30 of chapter 9. And in verse 30, Paul writes this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Paul, he's comparing the Gentiles and the Jews, the people of Israel... And the basis of his comparison is whether or not they have attained righteousness. And I want to say two things right out of the gate. Uh, First of all, I want to start with with a caveat here. It's not a caveat that we find written in the text, but I believe that Paul would completely agree because it's just true, and it's this. uh, Paul is not for a second suggesting that every Gentile has righteousness by faith, that they've attained righteousness. He's not saying that, nor is he saying that there are none of Israel who have been saved either. Uh, Paul himself is a Jew and a believer in Christ at the same time, and so at the time of this writing, uh, it's also true that there were many, many Jews who had become Christians. I was reading uh, the historian Josephus at the time, uh, a secular historian just making observation of of what he saw in society. He recorded that at the end of the first century, he said that one-third of the Jewish population were Christians one-third, which was a surprise to me. Uh, And of course, most of the Gentile world at this point also hadn't heard about Christ. And similarly today, I'm sure that, that many of us know Jewish people who are believers in Christ. And of course, we all know many, many, many Gentiles who have not come to know Jesus. And so Paul is not making a definitive statement here about all Gentiles and all Jews. Again, he's just answering that one question, why many Jews haven't found righteousness in Christ while many Gentiles have. Second thing, what is righteousness? Well, righteous is what God is. It means to be completely perfect, completely stainless, Completely sinless, completely holy. In fact, righteousness and holy in many cases can be interchangeable words. God is righteous. And we know from the whole Council of Scripture that if anyone wants to have a real relationship with a holy and righteous God, then they have to be holy and righteous themselves. And we also know from the whole Council of Scripture and from our experience that that's humanly impossible. And yet Paul is saying here that many Gentiles, having come from complete pagan and, and, and sinful backgrounds, having lived in blindness before, they are attaining righteousness. While many Jews, even if they have spent their whole life intentionally following God's law, they have not. So how, how can this be? Well, I want to point out two very important verbs in this paragraph, and they are in yellow on your screen. Uh, the first verb is the word attain, and the second is the word reaching. Uh, the Greek word used for attain is, is kataleben and that means to hold something, to take hold of something, to have it, to have it in your possession. Paul says the Gentiles have taken hold of righteousness, Without even pursuing it, he says, without even earning it, they are righteous before the Lord and therefore in true relationship with him, not because of what they've done, but rather because of their faith, their faith in Jesus. And then he contrasts that with Israel. And the most important verb here is ephthason, which can be translated as to reach. And this whole sentence about Israel compared to the sentence about the Gentiles is just a busy, busy sentence because Paul is saying that Israel, they pursued, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they did not exceed in reaching that law. They kept reaching, but they haven't attained it, that word attain. They haven't, they're not holding it. They're just reaching for it, ever reaching, but not, but not holding it. And then, so what is the law? The law Most of you already know this. Uh, Many, many, many years earlier, God gave Moses uh, a collection of rules that people were to follow, and these rules were how to live a life becoming of the people of God, rules that described a life that was honoring of God. The 10 Commandments were part of these rules, also various moral laws, social laws, purification laws, details about feasts and details about sacrifices, all kinds of things that people were to follow. there were apparently 613 commands in the law of Moses. And obeying every command, every rule, seeking forgiveness for every mistake was the only way to practically live a perfectly righteous life in the eyes of God. And no one, no one has ever done it except for Jesus. No other human being has ever lived a perfect life according to the law of Moses. And the law of Moses, never intended for anybody to live a perfect life. The law of Moses was never meant to save anyone. It's the opposite, actually. The law was meant to show us that we need saving so that we can put our faith in Christ. In Romans 3, verse 20, Paul said, "...for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." God gives us knowledge of our sin through his law. God gave us the Mosaic law so that it would be clear that we cannot possibly, possibly be righteous on our own. And so in that way, the law is meant to lead us to to Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes in his letter to the church in Galatia, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that, he might, that we might be justified by faith. I'll say that again. The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And this is something, something kind of cool. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses that is translated to guardian in this text is the word paedagogos, which at that time referred to a family servant who looked after the children, for their family and he walked them to school. That's cool because the law was our paidogogos, delivering us to Jesus, taking us to school, taking us to Christ, that we might put our faith in him. Because, my friends, it's always been about faith. Even before Jesus came, salvation was about faith and not by works. Just like we heard a few weeks ago, well before the law was even given, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in all the Old Testament writings of the law and the prophets, the underlying truth is that God cares more about our heart than he cares about our action. Through the prophet Isaiah, he said, these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So for God it's always been about the heart. It's always, always been about faith. And then in the writings of the Law and the Prophets, there were many predictions of a coming Messiah. Even then, the Jewish people were invited to put their faith in the Christ who was still coming. Remember Simeon. Simeon was an elderly man who lived in in Jerusalem at the time that, that Jesus was born. And when When Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to be circumcised, there was Simeon. He was waiting. He had been waiting. He'd been waiting for this Messiah his whole life because he was living in faith because of the law. What had been written told him that the Messiah was coming, and he believed it by faith. It's always been about faith. Simeon was a Jewish man. And he understood that, but the Jews that Paul is referring to in this passage, they did not. Instead of seeing the righteousness that the law was leading them to, and that's Jesus, they focused on the law itself as the means of attaining righteousness. One of the best additions to our home uh, that we've had over these last few years is we have a puppy. We post her on Facebook sometimes. Maybe you've seen her. She's super cute. But if if you have a dog, you you know this. If if you point to something, look over there. There's my puppy. She's not looking over there. She's looking over here. She's looking at my hand because I'm pointing and I'm trying to get her to see that thing and she's never looking at that thing because she's just looking at my hand. People weren't seeing what the law was pointing to. They were just looking at the pointer. They were getting mixed up and were just seeing, just seeing the law. And so they were always trying and they were always pursuing. They were always reaching but they were never attaining, never taking hold of it because the righteousness of God is only attained through faith in Jesus. If you... Um, if you listened to any pop music in the 90s, some of you did. I think some of you did not. (laughs) But if you did, then there is a song that I guarantee has sometimes been stuck in your head. And as soon as I start talking about it, for some of you, the song is going to be stuck in your head, and I'm sorry. The singer was Alanis Morissette. A good musician. Great songwriter. And... uh, Don't take this as a pastoral endorsement. (laughs) I I don't know that any of Alanis Morissette's songs are going to point you to Jesus. I don't think. But the song that I want to mention this morning uh, is called Ironic. Remember Ironic? It had this video, this music video of four Alanis Morissette's driving in this old car. That was my favorite music video for a while. Anyway, the content of the song, it's just a whole list of bad things that can happen to people. She says, isn't it ironic? Don't you think? It's like rain on your wedding day, a free ride when you've already paid. It's like good advice that you just can't take. <laughs> now, Alanis Morissette, she was a, a pretty good songwriter, but she would have been a lousy English teacher. Because the funny thing is, is that I don't think hardly any of the things in the song that she lists are actually ironic. They're just, uh, well, bad luck, mostly. Um, I think rain on your wedding day isn't ironic, it's just, it's just too bad that that happened. Uh, but I think, isn't it unfortunate, probably isn't as good of a song lyric. But this, though, in today's passage, this is irony. This is irony. Imagine dedicating your whole life to the pursuit of righteousness by trying to follow every little bit of the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. Imagine a lifetime of waking up every morning and saying, how am I going to be righteous today? How am I going to act and achieve in such a way to give glory to God and achieve righteousness in his eyes? Imagine that your whole life is based on that. Imagine that you want to give glory to God that way. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But then imagine finding out that all of that was worth nothing. That in fact, because of the very way, that you dedicated your life to pursue righteousness because of how you went to try to find righteousness every day, you missed out on righteousness. That's ironic. And it's more than ironic. It's, it's tragic. And let's, let's be careful not to judge the Jewish people in this passage too harshly because this doesn't apply to just them. It's the same for all of us. Imagine dedicating your whole life to being a good person. Imagine going to church every Sunday, faithfully donating money to important causes, treating people kindly, serving in ministry, attending committee meetings, helping little old ladies across the street. Imagine that you spend your whole life trying to do these things to do the right thing. Imagine a lifetime of genuinely reaching to be as good as you can be but then finding out that all of it was worth nothing. The righteousness of God is only attained through faith in Jesus. In 2 Second, Second Corinthians 5.21, we read this. God made him who had no sin, and that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross. He was the only one who had ever perfectly lived out the Mosaic Law, and he died as a sacrifice for our sin. In fact, he became our sin. Imagine the shame of that. You, you, you know your sin. You, you, you don't even hardly know my sin. And th- Imagine the shame of bur- becoming our sin, Collect- a collective of all of our sin, He became our sin so that anyone who puts their faith in him, that is, believes that he died for us and rose again, will become his righteousness. Jesus was righteous and we are righteous in the eyes of God because we become his righteousness if we put our faith in Christ. Now that's really good news for us. That's really good news for anybody who is ready to hear it, for anybody who understands it. But for anyone who is still reaching, that can be really offensive news. Linnell and I, we have a a good friend that we've had for a good number of years now. Uh, She is somebody that is from a very different faith background than what we are. And we've enjoyed her for for a long time already. Uh, But very early on in our friendship... Uh, She was over at our house one evening, and we were talking, and I don't know how it came up. She she knew that we were Christians and all of that. It's hard to hide that when you're a pastor. Uh, She she knew that already. Um, But she said something, something like, I'm really glad that you guys aren't the kind of Christians that believe that Jesus is the only way to know God. We'd been having such a nice time (laughs) until that moment. And it was really clear what needed to be, to be said next, and I, and I responded, and, and I, I, I think, I pray, that I responded lovingly, as lovingly as I knew how, but I also pray that I responded truthfully as well, which I believe I did. And our conversation became awkward, and to be honest, our friendship changed for quite a while. Uh, praise God, things have come back around again, and, and we can have conversations, and, and uh and we've talked about faith a number of times since, and it's been, I think, quite beautiful. But uh, but it was tough, because for anyone reaching for righteousness, rather than attending, rather than attaining righteousness, the good news of Jesus can be hard to hear. That is why, uh, in verse thirty-three, Paul shares this quote from Isaiah, spoken by the Lord: "Behold, I am laying in Zion." a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul, he's painting a picture, if you can imagine it, he's painting a picture of, of a roadway, and people are walking down this road to find righteousness before God, and in the middle of the road, there's this stone, there's this rock, and that rock is Jesus. And the ones who are intent to somehow create their own righteousness through their works, through their deeds, through doing the right thing, through helping others, through through whatever it might be. None of these travelers recognize the stone for what it is. And so they they miss it or they stumble over it, never reaching their goal, never knowing righteousness, and never knowing God. And then there are others, equally self-righteous, who are told about the stone or they see the stone but they are offended by the stone. They shake their fist at Jesus, and they say, how dare you tell me that I am sinful and that I need you to forgive me. For them, the stone in the road is a rock of offense. But then there are the ones who recognize the stone as being Jesus, and they realize that they can just leave everything there on the rock, and their journey is done. They can be righteous in God's eyes if they just rest right there. They will know the peace of abiding in Christ, and they will not be put to shame on that last day. And I love that Paul uses this particular analogy because this is cool. He literally, literally himself was on a roadway where he met Jesus Christ, remember? We read in Acts chapter 9... Paul himself had been a legalistic Pharisee. He was zealously following the Mosaic law in pursuit of his own righteousness. And he believed with all of his heart that Christians deserved to be punished for their faith because they were, they were spreading the wrong message. They were telling people that the law wasn't what you focused on anymore. And he was so dedicated to the law that he wanted Christians to be, to be rounded up and put in prison And that's what he was doing that day. He was on his way to Damascus to find Christians and so they could be arrested and that they could be be tried and and whatever would happen next. And from that day on, sorry, and on that day, on the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the risen and the living Jesus in all of his glory. And Paul's eyes were literally blinded, but he saw for the first time that day. What he came to see was that everything in his life that he had been building for his own righteousness didn't matter. It wasn't worth anything. And on that day, instead of stumbling over the stone, instead of walking away from the stone in offense, Paul rested on that stone and put his faith in Jesus Christ. And after that day, he could say, just as he writes in Philippians 3, if any, this is, these are Paul's words, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. As blameless as he humanly could possibly be. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, he said. Indeed... when Paul writes about people who are reaching instead of attaining, he's writing about people who are exactly like he used to be, exactly like we would be if we didn't know Jesus. And that is why Paul goes on to say what I think is at the heart of this passage. I wrestled with this passage. I wrestled and wrestled with this passage. But one of the turning points for me was when God showed me what I believe is the heart of this passage, and it's this. Brothers, and listen to Paul's heart here. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Do you hear his heart when he says that? I think he's crying when he writes that. When Paul says, For I bear them witness, he knows what it's like to be in their shoes because he was in their shoes. And so he is saying with all compassion and with all empathy, they have a zeal for God. They have a real zeal for God, but just not according to knowledge. They're not submitting to God's righteousness. And that's a rejection of of Christ. But they don't understand. They just don't understand God's righteousness. They don't see it yet. And so Paul isn't saying this to be condescending. He's not saying this to be patronizing. It is clear that his heart genuinely hurts for those who do not know Jesus, and he is saying that he is praying for them. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, you undoubtedly have others in your life, family or friends or or coworkers, who are not believers It might even be that sometimes you experience tension or conflict in your relationship because of the difference in belief that you have with somebody that you love. I think Paul's encouragement to us today is that we never patronize. We never see or treat others as lesser than. We never write anybody off and we never avoid them. But we pray for them. And then we pray some more and then we keep praying Loving everybody where they are at, and also lovingly speaking the truth whenever the opportunity is there. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, or if you're online with us this morning and you found us here but you're not a believer in Christ, first of all, welcome here. You are welcome here anytime. It's good to have you in our midst. Second of all, if you have, again, speaking to to those who are not believers, if you have people in your life that are believers, I just invite you to be patient with us. Uh, We don't always know the right thing to say, and we certainly don't always know the right thing to say and when to say it, But we just want you to know Jesus. Because you really need him. Because Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And that statement, that's the last statement in this passage. That could be a whole sermon in itself. I preach at a lot of funerals and a lot of weddings. That's mostly where I do my sermonizing. I don't do a lot of Sunday mornings. I find every time that I do this, it's a, it's a learning opportunity. But there was one time, I think it was Titus chapter three. And I preached and I preached and I preached and a really good friend of mine said after, you know, you preached a sermon and then you started a whole nother sermon. Probably could have just gone with just the one. There could be a second sermon here this morning and that would be Jesus Christ the end of the law. We would do well to explore how it is that Jesus is the goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law, the end of the law. But all I'm going to do is just say again that what the law does is it points us to Christ by showing us our sin that we could never measure up to the righteousness of God on our own, showing us our need And testifying about the one who was to come and has already come. Who can remove our sin from us and replace it with his righteousness. And for that, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, let us give thanks. Amen. Father, I thank you for the truth of what Anna just sung. I thank you for the truth of your word today. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your son. We recognize from your word, from your law, that we were hopelessly, irretrievably lost, that we could not have possibly found our way to you, that we could not have possibly come to know the kind of righteousness and to live the kind of righteousness that would be suitable for us to be appropriately in relationship with a God who is holy and righteous. We would have been forever reaching, forever reaching and never attaining, never having this peace that you've given us that we can just rest in Christ and know that we are yours for all of eternity. And we're here in this season that we're in. There's been so many difficult things in this past year in the lives of people, but also in the world around us. There is division, there is disagreement, there's opinions, there's, there's push and pull over all kinds of different things. But at the heart of it, Lord, at the heart of it, we recognize again that what matters, what's crucial, is that we are in you knowing your salvation, being set free like we just heard. That's crucial, and we thank you for meeting us there, and I pray that out of that, because if we have your Holy Spirit in us, out of that you would pour to the world around us, that we would be givers and lovers of peace with one another in this church family and with those around us, that we would also be instruments of truth, but with grace and with love, I pray that you would, you would bless us and others through us in that way, that others would come to know the peace of Jesus Christ, that others would come to know that he is the way to righteousness. God, please, may many come to know. Thank you for meeting us here. I pray that you bless each one of us as we go and, and think about Thanksgiving in whatever way that is our tradition to do that. I pray that you just bless our time, all of this for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We'll see you next week.